And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I am Dan Elmendorf. On the Skype line with us today is John Rawlinson, General Manager of the Banner of Truth Trust in Edinburgh. John, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Well, thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here with you. When I say Edinburgh, I believe that's Scotland. Could you tell us really quick a little bit about where you're located? Okay, yeah, it is in Scotland. We actually pronounce it Edinburgh, um, but I know that many people in the States have a real problem with that pronunciation, so we forgive you, that's fine. Um, but we're located in the capital city of Scotland. Uh, we're about, I guess, um, 500 or so miles north of London, um, so we're fairly well north in the UK, uh, which means that come the winter time we have very dark nights, and come the summertime we have very light nights. Uh, we're in the midst of that at the minute, so um, people sometimes say the weather here is terrible. Um, the weather here is fine, um, it's just that we don't get the sort of heat that you get sometimes in the summer in the States, uh, but we also don't get the cold either. <laughs> Intense cold and lots and lots of snow that you get. We're a very... We're a place that's very much affected by the ocean climate. So, so yes, we're based in northern UK. Well, that's very interesting, and it helps our listeners uh, better pinpoint where you are. And you run the Banner of Truth Trust as general manager, and uh, today we want to talk about an historical figure by the name of J.C. Ryle. And so could you get us started in talking about his life and the significance of of him and and the the blessing that he was for for the Church of the Lord. Yes, certainly. Um, J.C. stands for John Charles. Uh, so John Charles Ryle. Uh, he was born in May 1816. Um, so last year uh, was the 200th anniversary of his birth. Um, he he was born into a fairly wealthy family. Uh, his father uh, was a, an owner of a, a silk business and also banking business and one or two other business interests that they had as well. So he, he was brought up in a fairly wealthy environment. He said as a child he, he really lacked for nothing. Um, he was very well educated, so he went to one of what we call our public schools. That's a little bit different to public schools in America. Public schools here are rather exclusive places. He went to a place called Eton. And he did well academically there. Uh, he was also quite a sportsman. Um, so his favorite sport was cricket, but he would also have rowed and so on. Um, and then from Eton, um, a sort of late teenager, he went to university and he went up to Oxford. And he studied classics at uh, Christchurch in Oxford and graduated from there. The, the big change in his life, though, really, uh, at home, his, his grandfather actually was a, a Christian man and an evangelical, but his father uh, really had no great interest in spiritual things, which is rather sad. So at home, as a youngster growing up, um, he, he, there was very little of Christianity in the home. But when he was about 21, so it was his final year at university, uh, he was taken ill. And during his illness, uh, one of the things that he started doing was reading the scriptures. And by various other influences, uh, he found himself one morning on a Sunday going into church. And as he went into church, he was a little bit late and he went in during the reading and he heard the words, um, you know, by grace are you saved through faith. And, and that passage of scripture that he heard read that morning 
uh, was really what led to his conversion eventually. So by the age of sort of 21, uh, you get into 1837, he then described himself, and this is his own words, he said, I was fairly launched as a Christian. So he graduated, uh, he went home to a place, his father had bought a new house, a place called Henbury Hall, um, beautiful big Parkland estate in a place called Cheshire. So that's a little bit south of Liverpool, south of Manchester, but still in the sort of northwest uh, area of England. Um, when he went back there, initially he, he was thinking about possibly going into politics. So he then went to London for a period of time to study law, but he was unwell and ended up back at Henbury again. And he, he worked for his father in the bank. Uh, one of the things that we know he used to do was to sign banknotes. So he, he worked there, um, but life was to take a huge change. Um, he was 25 at the time, so it was June 1841, and his father's business collapsed. And uh, they suffered complete bankruptcy, had to sell the house, the home, everything had to go. Um, life obviously was dramatically different from being a fairly privileged family. They were now pretty much penniless and, and out of their home. One of the things, when he was in Oxford, um, th at the time, uh, it's different now, but back then, uh, doing a degree at Oxford uh, included doing some aspects of divinity. And in fact, your final exams included uh, an examination in divinity. And, and if you failed the divinity exams, you, you couldn't actually graduate in whatever else it was you were studying. That's how much they, you know, how much store they, they placed upon it. Um, but what it meant was that he, he was qualified as such, academically anyway, to enter the Church of England. And eventually that's what he did. Um, at the age of 25, he didn't really have a, a trade, so as to speak. Um, he wasn't trained to do anything in particular, and the family business that he would have been in has now disappeared. And so eventually, through one or two different routes, uh, he felt constrained to then go into the church. And so in 1841, he was ordained by the Bishop of Winchester. And really, that was the start of a period of many years of ministry. He started off in a small church as a curate on the south coast of England. And while he was there, he developed a sort of pattern of ministry, which really stuck with him through the rest of his life, actually. Uh, and his pattern was of preaching, and preaching was foremost in, in his view of ministry. Whatever else he did, you know, the preaching of the word had a primacy in, in the ministry in the parish. But he also believed in visitation, so he had a, um, a very hectic life visiting his parishioners. And when he was visiting them, he would encourage them to read, and he would, in fact, lend them uh, what were called tracts at the time, so little, little short writings, and encourage them to read them. And then the other thing that was very marked in his ministry throughout his life was that as well as having a concern for um, the spiritual well-being of his people, he also had a concern for their material well-being, too. Well, he started off as in a small place called Exbury, uh, moved on from there, uh, eventually ended up in a place called Helmingham in Suffolk, which is just north of London, sort of northeast of London. And that was about 1844. Shortly after going there, he got married. Ryle was to have uh, not the easiest time uh, in terms of marriage. Um, his first wife, uh, she was called Matilda, 
they had a, a child a couple of years after they were married called Georgina. But very shortly after they had that baby, his wife was taken ill and um, in, in 1848, so three years after they were married, she actually died. She passed away. So there was a sadness from that, obviously. Uh, two years later, he married again. Uh, and again, it wasn't to be the easiest of times. The, his second wife uh, lived for a, about 10 years. They were married for around about 10 years. Uh, they have four children, but she suffered ongoing illness and eventually she too died in 1860. Uh, he, he then moved churches to a place called Stradbrook, again still in Suffolk, uh, north of London, and he married again to a lady called Henrietta. That was a 28-year marriage, and she lived uh, through to 1889 and died in Liverpool when he was eventually in Liverpool. Um, she was a, a photographer, an organist. She was a good secretary, was a great help to Ryle. And also a tremendous mother, actually, to the children, because at this point, um, Ryle had five children and she was a tremendous mother to them. So he was in Stradbrook. His ministry was developing. Uh, he'd studied the Puritans uh, and learned a lot from them in his time uh, in Helmingham. Uh, he'd started writing. So he'd started writing tracts. He'd started writing the expository thoughts. A lot of people, I guess, will know Ra's expository thoughts on the gospel. Uh, and during his time uh, in Helmingham and then Stradbrook, he, he'd done a lot of work on those and had been doing quite a bit of writing. But in 1880, um, he moved uh, and he went to Liverpool. He was called by uh, the prime minister of Britain to go and visit him in London. And when he arrived, the prime minister told him that they wanted him to become the first bishop of Liverpool. Rao was kind of surprised because he was aged uh, 63 when he was first told about this. And, and he wasn't, I think, necessarily thinking that 63 was a good age to become a bishop. He considered himself perhaps to be a bit too old. Um, but as it turned out, he had nearly 20 years of service ahead of him as the bishop of Liverpool. And so in the summer of 1880, he went to Liverpool. At that time, he was age 64 and became the bishop there. Liverpool is in the northwest of England. Uh, at the time, it was a, a, a tremendous port city. Um, it had grown very rapidly due to um, the sort of trade around the world. It, it was a very important port. But there was a lot of poverty in the city, too. And Raya wouldn't have been able to walk very far, really, in the city without finding, you know, great poverty and sitting alongside too great wealth of the merchants. So there's a lot to do in terms of being the bishop. Um, he did a lot of work for his clergy. They built churches. They built mission halls. They established new members of the clergy. Uh, he, he had a view of it involving lay people, too, quite extensively in ministry. And so they had evangelists and they had people who uh, worked with the poor. Uh, he helped with trying to get better education for children. He worked with orphanages, um, lots of sort of social things as well as the spiritual things. It, again, it goes back really to his view. The preaching was was primary, um, but visitation was also very important. Social as well as spiritual things were important, too. Um, he preached extensively as a bishop around his um, his diocese. 
Uh, I think I'm right to saying of something like preached something like 190 churches in the first couple of years that he was a bishop in Liverpool. And it was something he continued to do right through to the time when he died. By about 1899, uh, he's now about 83. Uh, his health was clearly in decline. And so he was persuaded by his son, actually, um, to realise that his time was coming to an end in Liverpool. So he resigned from the bishopric in March 1900. Uh, he retired to Lowestoft, which is a place on the east coast of England. And then shortly afterwards, June the 10th, 1990, uh, he passed away, so he was aged 84 at the time. So it's a little bit of his life, a little bit of his sort of uh, ministry as well. Well, that's very helpful. Um, this man, J.C. Ryle, was used the Lord. One of the things I read about him, just a little snippet, was that he was a strong supporter of the evangelical school. He was a critic of ritualism. Uh, is that true? And, and what is meant by that statement? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, Ryle was uh, an unashamed evangelical, and he stood against um, changes that were being put forwards in the Anglican Church. He was an Anglican man, in case I didn't mention that. Um, and in the Anglican Church of his time, you found quite a spectrum of people. And there was a significant movement in the Anglican Church to want to introduce more in the way of ritualism into worship. So you would have had people who wanted to introduce um, pretty much a, a mass um, as one of the services. They would have been very strong on vestments, um, candles, incense, all the sort of things that were associated with very high church uh, worship. Um, and very much basing the, their Christianity on ritualism. You know, these are the things that, that save you. And Ryle was a great opponent of that, and he believed that the thing that people needed to focus on were, were the scriptures. Um, and he was, a, as I say, a thoroughgoing evangelical, and he fought strongly for that. It, it was a difficult fight, and I think it was an exhausting fight, too. Um, in many ways, amongst the bishops, he was a—he wasn't entirely a lone voice. That wouldn't be true to say that. There were others who would be of a similar mind to him. But at times, it was a fairly lonely battle that he was fighting. Um, so, yes, he was a, a thoroughgoing evangelical man. Yeah, that's interesting. He wrote a number of works. Does any of his works stand out to you as being particularly helpful to the average Christian to pick up and read? Yes, yeah, certainly. I, one of, the, one of the, the interesting things about Ryle's works are that most of them started off as what were called tracts. Now, I, I think nowadays, I, I think it's probably the same in America as it is here in the UK. Most people, when they think of a tract, they think of something that's very short and probably evangelistic. Um, maybe quite a small piece of paper they're produced on, maybe two or three, maybe four sides at the most, and that's about it. And sometimes they're very graphic in terms of lots of pictures and just a few pieces of writing on. But, but in Ryle's day, tracts could be far more extensive than that. And some of Ryle's tracts that he wrote actually ran to sort of 100 pages. They were really little booklets or little books. So when you pick up a Ryle book, um, many of his books started off that way. So each chapter would originally have been a separate tract. 
Uh, and that means that they are, in a sense, they're self-contained chapters and they're very easy to read. Ryle had a very simple style. Uh, it was something that he developed, in fact, with his preaching. Um, you know, he used to say that, you know, if you're ministering in a rural setting like he was for significant periods of time in Helmingham and then Stradbrook, you know, he had the, the plowboy coming into the church on a Sunday wanting to put his feet up and go to sleep. So, you know, he had to preach in a very direct manner, in a very simple manner um, and keep these people awake. He used to talk about having light and fire in the pulpit um, and it was necessary to have that. Um, to, to keep people's attention and to get the gospel truths across. And so you see that in his writing as well. It, it's, it's not difficult to read. Um, it's quite punchy at times. Um, so it, it, if I was to pick one, one of his books, um, I, I would say Holiness would be the one I would pick. It's interesting, you know, where he starts off with Holiness uh, and he's not ashamed to start there. And that is he starts with sin. Um, you know, I think, unfortunately, in many of our circles today, um, we're almost afraid to mention this word. You know, and when we're talking about the gospel, we almost kind of put sin at the back end of it, you know. Um, but but Ryle wasn't like that. He, you know, Ryle he said, you know, sin is the great enemy which can deceive unbelievers into thinking that they do not need salvation and deceive Christians into thinking that they do not need sanctification. And that was Ryle's position. So when he starts off in the book Holiness, the first bit that you read is all about our sinfulness. Um, and then he goes on from there, really, to, to talk about sanctification and the need for sanctification. Um, he talks about assurance, um, and it's a real, a real challenge to to unbelievers and believers alike. To unbelievers, to say you need to, you need you need holiness, you need salvation, and to believers, to saying you need to 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 seek sanctification in your life, and you need to live a, a holy life. So, holiness, I would say, is is a place that. It's a good place to start. You know, everybody should read that book. Um, it's such just just a challenging book, I think, and um, a powerful book as well. Yeah. While you're talking here, I'm I'm trying to look at your website at the same time. And uh, mm -hmm. before we go much further, I I wanted to mention that your website is found at banneroftruth.org. And could you take a moment and just describe your website to folks and? And how would they go about uh, looking up J.C. Ryle on that website? Okay. Um, yeah, banneroftruth.org is, is where we are. Um, if you go on the website, uh, you can search by all sorts of different things. But one of the things you can do, I think it's in the top right-hand corner of the screen, there's a search box there. And you could just put in J.C. Ryle. And if you re hit return on that, it's going to bring you various things to do with Ryle. Um, It'll bring you up books. There are some articles on the website. So we have on the website all sorts of articles. There's usually a number of new ones go up every week, and there's quite a um, sort of archive of articles there. So if you're looking for anything, you can search for those. One of the things that will get pulled up is a bit about the author, and you can go to the author page, so the J.C. Ryle author page, and there's a very brief biography on there for you to read uh, that you can flip through then onto a list of his books. Uh, and it will tell you all the books that we publish at Ryle. 
So you'll see there, you'll have, there's, a, there's some in Spanish as well, there's some booklets, um, there's the bi- autobiography. Ra- Raoul did a partial autobiography. It doesn't cover the whole of his life. So it doesn't have his time in Liverpool, for instance, which is the last sort of 20 years of his life. Um, but that, that book has some fascinating things in. It has things, even, even things like um, a copy of his, of his will when he died. Um, it's got some remarkable family photos as well, which really are quite interesting. Um, and you'll find that um, on there, you'll find listed all the different books, as I say, that, that we publish by him. Expository thoughts on the Gospels, are possibly alongside holiness, his best known books. Um, but there are, you know, lots of others like Practical Religion and The Upper Room and Old Paths and things like that as well. There is also a biography by Ian Murray of J.C. Ryle, which is called Prepared to Stand Alone. Uh, and that does cover the whole of his life. Um, and obviously there's a bit more analysis in it than in an autobiography. Um, and Ian writes in a very engaging way. It's, it's a good read, uh, well worth well worth getting if you're interested in Ryle. Well, that's neat. I uh, I did a search here, and I, I noticed there was a book called Agency That Transformed a Nation, uh, subtitle Lessons from the Great Awakening of the 18th Century. Yes. And uh, I imagine that's a fascinating read for someone who's interested in the effect of thinking on culture and kind of a cause and effect. I would guess that that, that, that would be of interest to them. Yeah, it's actually a short booklet. It's um, it's an extract from another book. He Ryle has a book called Christian Leaders of the 18th Century. Mm-hmm. This is one chapter from that book. Um, so we, we did it as a, a little booklet because it's we felt that it was worthy to stand on its own. Um, it, it's a fascinating read, actually. And what you see is Ryle, in a sense, you see Ryle's take on things. Um, and it's very much the way that he patterned his ministry. Um, you know, he, he talks about what was it that changed the nation? What was it that caused the Great Awakening? And, you know, and you, you, you read that and you come away from, from that saying, you know what, it's a confidence in the Bible. Yeah. And it's the preaching of the word and it's the work of the spirit. These are the things um, which mark Ryle's ministry. And these are the things which, in a sense, you know, he learned from the earlier generation. Um, and from his reading of the earlier generations that, uh, you know, he had a very strong view of church history, did Riley, believed in church history, that we should know our history and that we should learn lessons from our church history. Um, so, yes, it's a very helpful little booklet. It's not very long. Um, it's quite short, so it doesn't take long to read. <laughs> well, that's, that's wonderful. Um, today we're talking with uh, John Rawlinson. Uh, he's the general manager of the Banner of Truth Trust, and a uh, little-known fact is that uh, we sometimes place an order for one of your booklets. It's the uh, Shorter Catechism with Scripture Proofs, and it's just a very uh, inexpensive uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we offer it free of charge to our listeners who, who ask for that. We've sent a number of them out, and it's uh, really nice to use in your family, with your children, whatever, and um, we'd highly recommend that you look up banneroftruth.org, banneroftruth.org. Um, you also have a whole series on Puritan works, if I'm not mistaken. That's, that's right. Um, I mean, when we started off in the, what, the late 1950s, 
Uh, a lot of the work that we did then was reprinting of Puritan books that in many cases have been out of print for 100 plus years. Um, and we still do that today. We have everything from sort of full sets. So we do the works of John Owen, for instance, the 16 volumes of that, another seven volumes of Owen on Hebrews. Uh, but we also have this series of paperbacks that we do called the Puritan paperback series, um, which, you know, are extracts out of the larger works of, of a number of different Puritans. And yeah, there's something that I think, oh, I ought to know this, but I can't remember. There's, there's probably around about 50 um, Puritan paperback titles in print at the moment. So yeah, and that's that's something which we keep adding to as well as uh, as the time goes by. Well, you guys are doing a, a beautiful job, and uh, first um, decided to contact you because of this Bishop J. C. Ryle's autobiography that you did mention, the early years, and uh, obviously that is available also on BannerOfTruth.org. Thank you very much. For taking your time today, John Rawlinson, General Manager, the Banner of Truth Trust. And if someone wants to get a hold of you for any reason, how might they do that? Um, they can do that. They can contact us at info at Banner of Truth. And if they're in North America, banneroftruth.org. If they're outside of North America, info at banneroftruth.co.uk, so co.uk. If they want to get to me, they can go to either of those and address something to me. That will get through to me. That will be fine. Oh, beautiful. Well, thank you so very much for taking your valuable time today. John Rawlinson has been our guest, General Manager, Banner of Truth Trust, here on Redeemer Broadcasting. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. <laughs> 